What is up, designers, and welcome to the Grand Design Podcast, the greatest podcast in the universe. Uh, for obvious reasons, <laughs> I just dubbed it that. But uh, this is part three of the design series. Um, this is your host, Dallas Prater, as always. You know, just the entire rundown. If you need a recap of what has happened, I do recommend you listen to, you know, podcast episode one and two. As these, you know, this is part three of that series, the designer series, as I'm just now calling it. But just to uh, give an even quicker recap, uh, you know, this podcast is for, I you know, the minds in the world that are different from the people around them. You have ideas. You have ideas that would drastically improve the quality of life around you in the world at large. And you want to get them out to the world. You want to create mass movements around them. But those ideas are stuck in your head for obvious reasons. You know, there are huge walls and barriers that are holding you back, whether it's time, money, society, the media. You know, everything is designed to crush you in your will and break you as a person. And where we're at in this story is uh, I'm kind of I'm at the bottom of the world. I'm going through hell. I'm broken as a person. You know, I've never felt really understood. I've never felt, you know, a genuine connection with another human being up until this point in time. You know, all these different ideas and, you know, in my head, I've always felt alone with them. And like they were my burden to carry and that no one else actually cared what was right or wrong or what could improve in the world. They just kind of followed the crowds. And this had resulted in me, you know, long story short kicked out of college with a zero GPA, quitting my job after an armed robbery, uh, getting kicked out of my own home, uh, rightfully so, you know, running across the country to Los Angeles. And I'm now broke as a joke. Uh, I believe my account, you know, my PNC bank account is in overdraft and, uh, which means I'm negative. I don't have any money. And, uh, I'm here with my girlfriend while she's attending, um, to college, you know, uh, She's going to, you know, acting school. And uh, so she's gone for acting school at 9 a.m. in the morning. And I'm sitting in this hotel that uh, she bought essentially with some of the last bits of her money. And uh, we have no way to get back home to Maryland, to Baltimore, because we've now signed uh, a lease uh, for a 12 month lease for an apartment. Okay, so that's pretty much (laughs) the situation. Okay, so we went back, you know, if you you know what I'm talking about, if you heard the you know podcast number two, if you didn't go back and let's do it. So we landed back in L.A. Uh, on January 6th of 2020. And uh, to be honest, man, up until this point, um, I thought things would go severely differently. You know, I posted even on my Instagram because that's how confident I am in my dreams and my aspirations. I have conviction when I see something in my mind, you know, it's instantly reality to me. I even posted on my Instagram. You can see it on my story. My Instagram is J-U-N-I-E-E-P. It's Juni Prayer. Juni like a name, then prayer like a prayer. Put them together. That's my Instagram. You can see it like in my little story highlights, you know, my goals for the new year of 2020. And one of them was a million dollars. The ClickFunnels 2 Comma Club Award. Um, It was a bunch of goals that I thought I would have. And I'm sitting here January 6th, 2020 in this hotel, you know, not bought with my money, broke as a joke and not able to do anything for the person that I love more than anybody. I was at the bottom of the world. You know, I was, you know, I, I felt bitter and betrayed, like I said, because I'm listening to all these people that I felt were like me. I found a culture around me of people, you know, in the internet marketing crowd, in the entrepreneur crowd, the Russell Brunson's, the Frank Kearns. And uh, I thought they knew and they understood me and they felt me. 
in a way that family or friends or anybody else in the world hadn't. And so I was riding with them against the rest of society, against the mainstream media, using all their advice, advice to try to break down that wall. I had ideas in my head that I wanted to get out to the world, but I didn't have the time, the money, the personnel. And I was using these ideas of how to create a business to break down that wall so I can get to the reward on the other side, which was eventually using this business to fuel my rap career, being a famous rapper and finally receiving the love and understanding from the culture of people in the world that were just like me. But um, none of that was happening. Like I said, my account was in overdraft. Um, I had one client at this point in time, but they weren't, you know, uh, we were on a payment plan. So I wasn't getting paid on a schedule that would uh, really help me survive. You know, my girlfriend has uh, stock options from her job, but, uh, you know, that's running short. She essentially paid a lot of it to afford the first month of our you know, apartment lease. Um, and the next two months were, it had first two months free. Okay. So we had a pocket of time that we could work with, but, um, even still we had to go sign the actual lease. And so it was not signed yet, but, uh, that was going to be the move And uh, in the midst of all this, you know, obviously it's calamity, like, you know, it's, it's pure, it's pure calamity. So we're waiting to engage in this lease and we're at this hotel and, we're paying for she's paying for rather day by day by day by day and the money that we we're not making money we don't have jobs over here and the money that we are we've nestled up to survive is dwindling moment by moment by moment by moment by moment that moment in your life that moment in your mind because you will come across that moment is someone who risks it all is someone who believes in everything because she's just like that you're going to come across hard patches where you're not going to you're not really sure how you're going to survive you're not really sure how you're going to do it. In that moment, in those moments, is you're at the bottom of the world. That's what I'm going to call it. You're in the wilderness with scary things, with animals. You're prey to the world around you. I felt hunted. I felt like, you know, like I said, I felt the finiteness of all the resources around me. And uh, I felt like I felt I felt them running thin. And them running thin was essentially my life running thin. I felt like I had failed as a, you know, as a partner, you know. I failed to live up to what I promised somebody I would do, you know, and I felt completely emasculated. Uh, you know, it, you know, just, just, I don't know, like I wasn't performing at all and I was frustrated. I felt betrayed. I felt bitter because the culture of people that I was following their instructions, things weren't working out for me. I had done everything. I had tried over and over and over again. I tried every tactic in the book, every strategy in the book. I read the dot-com secrets. I read the expert secrets. Amazing books. Probably some of the best books in human history, in my personal opinion. And still, things weren't working out for me. And it, it hurt. You know what I mean? I, like, it was like I had faith in you. I had faith in the vision that you had. You know, I'm only one funnel away. I'm only... I'm having faith in this. And things are just going downhill. You know, and we would talk sometimes. And, you know, she would say, man, you got to pick it up. You know, you got to... You, you know, you got to make this business thing work. You know, um, things are falling apart, you know, and, and it's obvious, it's evident that it's on account of me, you know. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what had went wrong all these years. My parents had told me, just go to school, go to college, and maybe they was right. You know, I, I, I just, I just didn't, you know, I came over here with the mindset that I wanted to be a figure 
I wanted to be famous. That's all I really cared about. I wanted to I wanted the the crowds to love me, man, because like I said, that was something I I felt that I lacked and I wanted to help them become and feel like how I felt about the world. I wanted my ideologies to be accepted. And none of that was happening. And what's worse, man, I had began to feel a strange sensation about what I wanted at all. And so I'm sitting here because she had gone out to school at 9 a.m. It's early in the morning. I'm at this hotel Ramada, you know, off the freeway. And it's absolutely silent in the room. And the sun is filtering through, not the blinds, whatever you call those, the, the curtains. It was the little thin curtain they had over the... And I'm just laying on the bed and I'm just thinking, man. I do that sometimes. When, when I'm stumped, when I'm hitting a rut, I just sit and think, you know. My thoughts were clouded. My thoughts were murky. My thoughts were blurry. Where I had clarity before, where I had certainty before... Now, I wasn't so sure, and this was the most critical moment where I had to be sure because we were entering this lease regardless of anything. $2,000 a month, and there was never going back. The deposit was being made. All that had to be done was the signature. And I'm stumped. You know, I'm completely stumped. I don't know why. I've been trying for two years, spent more than $5,000 without getting a single sale. You know, my Facebook ad account was up like negative $300 negative $100, you know, my Google account, I had used negative, negative $300, which means I, I owed them money and I couldn't pay it because I had no money on my cards. I owed the banks. Um, you know, you're 22 at this point. You don't have car insurance. You don't have your first car. You don't have a job. You don't have, you know, I hadn't spoken to my family for a while at this point, you know. Uh, I spoke to them on Christmas, but just briefly, everything was reconciled that day and I under- we, we understood each other. And you know, that was that. But, I, you know, it wasn't to the point where I would call on them for help. I've never been that type of person. Introversion, you know, being one of the reasons why I don't reach out and talk to people a lot. You know, people that I love the most probably hear from me once a year. You know, and, and they call me stranger for it. We make jokes about it. But this is this is it. You're alone. You're in the dark. You're at the bottom. And there is, you know, honestly no hope. You know, I made an announcement on a video on Instagram that I would never work a job again because I felt that was one of the ideas in society that was felt was just contrary to my being. I would never step into school again. I would never practice organized religion again. These were ideas that I thought was against my being. And, you know, I guess the only thing, you know, the only choice I had at this point was from what I could see was to get a job and work a regular life. Just quit on this mission. You had to pay the rent. You can't, you, you have to eat somehow. You know, all these tents are lining up and down the road, you know, of people that came here and became homeless, became addicted to meth, fell into a situation where they couldn't find their way out. They struggled, man. If you see the homeless in the city, man, it's a very, very sad situation. It's a very, very stark situation. People are out here struggling. More so than anything more beyond even becoming these people is that I wouldn't be able to reach and help these people because I couldn't figure it out I thought you know I, I don't know I, I don't know I just things were falling apart is what I want to say and I'm going to stop beating that dead horse but things were falling apart and the way I felt about my mission was in was becoming in question I remember if you fast forward a couple years ago 
you know. And this was something that had come to my mind periodically throughout time. Uh, it was for my girlfriend's 21st birthday. Uh, so it was for February 9th of what, 2019? Uh, her 21st birthday. And we were in New York City. And uh, even up until this point where I'm in the hotel, you know, I want my face plastered on things and people to revere me. But I remember seeing in New York City as we were exiting in the middle of Times Square, we were on our way out. We were running for the mega bus, man. It was absolutely freezing cold that day. I don't know why, but New York City is always cold, cold and rusty and gray and foggy. And we were on our way to leave, but I believe we were stopping somewhere to eat first. So we were heading through Times Square before we would go down the series of streets to get to the mega bus stop and i remember seeing a picture of a boogie the rapper i'd never seen his face before but i had seen him blown up right there on the digitalized billboard in the middle of Times square the biggest face in the crowd and i remember just thinking to myself man i want to be like that but even in that instance even in that moment a lot of me was telling myself that, yeah, that's what you want. But a twinge, a little tiny voice in the back of my mind was saying, something about this does not feel right. Something about this feels off. I couldn't quite put my hand on it. And so I continued believing I want to be a mass rapper. I want to be a big face. I want to be on that billboard. I want to be the greatest. I want to win the Grammys. I want to have the awards. And I left New York that day with that spinning in the back of my mind and it would repeat until you know for years and years and years so sitting in this hotel i thought i was thinking about it you know and uh you know something also interesting had happened that day or the day before rather i had we had arrived in la right and the first thing we're shocked by is the amount of tents that are covering the streets i remember the first day we visited the city i believe we pulled by the baltimore hotel down skid row uh, it was nighttime and there were whole, you know, tents in hordes and hordes of homeless people, people who didn't have anything in life lining the roads. They were lining the roadsides. And we pulled by there multiple different days, you know, and, and that's just in the homeless are everywhere in the city. Some people are just poor, broken, homeless. Some people are homeless and meth addicted. Some people are homeless and ridden with mental illness. And people are just walking by them every single day without batting an eye, without giving a care in the world. Almost as if this class of people don't exist. Because uh, they're homeless and I'm not. That's what a lot of people feel. Oh, they're homeless and I'm not. So I don't have to worry about it. You know, all they have to do is do what I do. I work. Why can't they? People are walking past these people like they're like husk. You know, they're so riddled with drugs and the ones that aren't, they're like ghosts because no one sees them. People walk straight through them if they stood in front of them. And I remember one day we were pulling down Skid Row, man. And we saw a group of two tiny children playing in between the tents. You know, and I just thought, man, hot, warm, cold, freezing, sickness, pandemic, any condition, these people are out here. And no one just no one wants to help them. No one sees humanity in them at this point in time. Because they're different from us. In their mind, that's what people are thinking. They're different from us. And I remember conversely, another day we were just kind of exploring the city. But after one day one day after she came to school when we were in one of the Airbnbs. And I remember 
You know, that feeling of watching the people ignore people on Skid Row, it didn't feel right. It hurt my heart. You know, that's one of the things that ruptured my heart. And it started, and I feel like that was one of the instances where I reflected on that A Boogie situation and reflected on that tiny voice that said it didn't feel right. I want to make that clear. That was one of the instances where that happened. A day after or two days after, something like that, I'm riding around, you know, Los Angeles. I don't remember, I don't think we visited this city, you know, again after that date. But uh, we were riding around the city of Los Angeles. And I remember seeing we, the, the Sunset Boulevard, or we might have rotted to Sunset Boulevard, street sign. And I remember coming up the road, you know, because we were, we man, every day when I was at home, because I wanted the riches, I wanted the life that these celebrities would have. Uh, me and Alexis, we would watch on uh, the iPod or the iPad these videos um, by a guy named Chuckett's Crusoe. He's a Las Vegas realtor. And he explores these multi-million dollar houses. And Ines Yamilzer or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. But these, these are realtors. They would explore these houses in the Hollywood Hills and um, things like that. And uh, Chuckett's would explore these houses in Vegas. And we would sit back and just imagine owning these houses one day. And imagine these marble bathtubs and, you know, rainforest shower bathrooms. And, you know, uh, we had a taste of that experience on our last birthday about a year ago now. Uh, when she turned 21, as a, when we stayed at the William Vale in New York, a very, very fancy, uh, you know, it cost $1,000 for, I, b- I believe, two days. Um, it was a hotel. And so this 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 was something that attracted us to Sunset Boulevard because we had heard so much about it. You know, Sunset Boulevard, Belleville, there was the Hollywood Hills. So we were like, OK, let's go to the Sunset Boulevard and see all these people. I was a big fan, man, from watching T- uh, Ty Lopez videos of the Rolls Royce, man. But I remember... And Lamborghini particularly. I still love Lamborghini. But I remember hitting a left on his road. You know, the Sunset Boulevard. And at first, the houses who were looking for these magnificent houses are like regular. They're like the regular Spanish-type houses that are here and everywhere, everywhere in Glendale and Burbank, California. We're pulling down this road looking for these houses. And the first thing that pops out is not the houses. The first thing that pops out is the overabundance of supercars. Man, there are Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis everywhere. Phantom after Phantom after Phantom after Phantom. Rafe after Rafe after Rafe after Rafe. Aventador, 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 Gallardo. Everywhere. And I remember, I thought I'd be so excited to see, because every time I see a Lamborghini back home, I'm like, oh my God, it's a Lamborghini. Even when we got here for the first few days, it was like, oh, it was a Lamborghini. But pulling down Sunset Boulevard and seeing all these people living a completely isolated life and having in mind skid row on this side of the world something about it just seeing these rolls royces and the overabundance of you know these luxury cars and his luxury lifestyle now don't get me wrong i'm a complete fan of people having wealth i'm a complete fan of people building big businesses and reaping their rewards from it I don't believe in wealth distribution. I believe in, you know, you keeping the merits of what you earned. I do believe that. And I'll never believe anything. Well, you you never know how time changes, you know. But something about it didn't feel right. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it felt like the A-Boogie situation, the digital posters. 
And I remember thinking about that. I remember thinking of wanting to make a video on Instagram saying like, this kind of relates to the 2014 Forest Hills Drive J. Cole album, where, you know, he went out to Hollywood and something about it felt strange to him. From a small town, I'm from Baltimore, 100,000 people live in that city. And now I'm here in the big city and everyone has these fancy things. It's something about it just didn't feel right to me. We went home that night to the back to the hotel. Mind you, this is a couple days before the actual event where I'm sitting in the hotel that I'm talking about here. And I'm and we're sitting in the hotel. And I believe the Golden Globes come on. And something about that, man, watching all these rich and famous people, you know, which nothing wrong with them being rich and famous. It's just adding details to the story. Getting up for these awards, you know, they're so, so obsessed with the awards that they've won plenty of times and a ceremony that happens every year and they get up and they make these speeches about the things that they want to change in the world or the things that we, the public, should change in the world or other celebrities should change in the world, just not them. And they're wearing these fancy suits and they're in the gathering, you know, just to be on TV, just to be shown, just to be in the media, just to just to have attention. And it's like, uh, which a lot of it goes into, you know, they got to have attention to boost their brands, to boost their image, to boost, you know, to continue helping the world the way they are. That's not to be denied. But something about it, again, just didn't feel right. Something about it, again, just did not feel right. I think a problem that I have is that, I, you know, I can't really pinpoint the problem that I have with it without attacking someone for, you know, specifically for their own success that they earned and that they deserve because they per, they became the person that was worthy of it. But I feel like a lot of people are talented. A lot of people are rich and famous. But their richness and their fameness, fame, the implications that it has on the world and society at large could be far greater and implicated in a far more different way than it already is. It's one thing to be loved and be admired. It's another thing to create a school of thought. Along that goes along with it to make a statement, and that's why I love people like Kanye. I love Kanye West because he's famous and rich for music, but he stands for something. That's what I'm saying. They stand for what they're good at, but they don't stand for something universal. Kanye West stands for something, he has a culture and a meaning to him. You understand what I mean? It's a little bit different. So that idea started to worm its way into my mind and I'm holding in my mind the highest of L.A., the riches of L.A. and the poorest and the poor and how they're living and how people drive past them every day without even recognizing them. All these thoughts are playing through my head. People are more likely to give $100 to a celebrity than they are to someone that's poor. But why is that? I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make no 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 one one way or one two ways about it, whatever the quote is. <laughs> and so I thought, man... I don't know who I am. I don't know who I want to be anymore. And I got up because this is something I would do routinely. And I took a walk out of the hotel. I was going to Sub Eleven to get me some snacks. I always I got a Doritos and some uh, double stuffed co- Oreo cookies that day. But I remember just walking out of the hotel, walking down the stairs, walking through the lobby, uh, then walking down the street. Uh, it was a beehive on the street that was raging, and some lady was 
under it screaming and yelling or whatever but i walked past her i walked under the bridge and i remember coming out of the other side of the bridge i was listening to save me i believe by boogie uh west side boogie not a boogie uh, on repeat over and over and again because I just thought the song was beautiful and I was just thinking to myself I was thinking about where am I on this spectrum of rich and poor who have I been in life what are the things that I'm chasing and why can't I have them why can't why do I keep failing I thought long and hard about it and then a couple lessons that I haven't been following had began to resurface. One thing Russell Brunson always says is, is he says it's the who, not the what. It's the who, not the what. And another lesson had resurfaced. I remember I was at Target. And this is one of the most important lessons that ever dawned on me. I remember when I was at Target. This had not even hit me at the time. It had hit me, but not to the extent that it would during this walk. I was walking along. It was an absolutely beautiful day. The sun was shining. I felt, my mind felt bogged down, but my body felt light. The music was carrying me, you know. No one was really outside. This was like a rural, nice, sunny, beautiful back neighborhood. After I came out the other side of that bridge and I made a left. And I was recounting, man. I remember I was at Target working the night shift. And at Target, working the night shift, uh, we had a manager. His name was Harry. And he would be on our tails every single day, man. Take out your headphones. Take out your headphones. Take out your headphones. Uh, another lady named Stephanie, uh, she would do the same thing. At 4 a.m. in the morning, pitch black, store lights are off, except for a few dim lights. And we would be working in the aisles. But the store is so big, mind you, that you can get away with listening to music as long as you're slick. So I wasn't listening to the music, but I would have my headphones in. And I would dodge between the aisles so that Harry or Stephanie on some of these random seldom nights wouldn't catch me. And in those times, I was trying to, you know, I was I was learning about the culture that I would adopt, the culture of Internet marketers, the people that was us and not them. That wasn't people like, you know, the people in society that try to hold us with minds back. I was developing an identity. I was developing a superpower. I was developing a knowledge of how to do business so that I can get past this wall, so I can make it, so I can get these Rolls Royce and fandoms and all these things that these other people have. I remember dodging between the aisles and I was listening to uh, someone who worked with Russell Brunson. His name was Stephen Larson. And Stephen Larson was on the podcast hosting, uh, which is a sales on a radio podcast. If you want to listen to that, it's a beautiful podcast. He was hosting a guy named Myron Golden. And, uh, the podcast was kind of un- unwinding in the background as I was doing my work and, you know, nothing, you know, was really popping out to me at that point, that point in time until one thing caught my ear and Myron Golden said, and this, if you're someone with ideas, man, if you're someone who wants to get your ideas out into the world in the form of a mass movement, I want you to always take this with you. Myron Golden said, there are four levels of value. Okay. He said the first level of value is implementation. The implementer is in a business is a person who does the thing. So in a lawnmower business, for example, they're the person that mows the lawn. In a restaurant business, they're the per- people that, you know, they cook. They, 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 you know, they serve the food. They do the stuff. They're like who I was at Target. I was a stocker. I was stocking the shelves with, you know, that's what I was doing. And he says an implementer in the business 
is someone who gets paid the least amount of money. They get paid the least amount of money in the business. And that is something that sent shivers down my spine. And like it it, it, it rang through the bones in my body because I realized, oh, wow. I, I'm at the time by, mind you, at this period of time, this is the first nine months of me working as a freelance writer. I'm writing and uh, I, I'm a freelance writer and what I'm doing is implementing in my business. I'm doing the actual writing in my writing business. I'm doing the actual searching for customers in my business. I'm doing the actual Facebook ads. I'm doing the actual, I'm doing all this stuff on my own. I'm implementing and I'm getting paid poorly because of it. I'm the implementer in my business. That's what I realized. And he says, so implement implementers, the resource that they use is their muscles. And that's bad because muscles is a finite resource. Let me explain to you that a little bit, that concept. So let's say I'm a writer in my writing business, you know, which if this is a situation that happens to all people who start a business. Um, and I learned this through my writing endeavors where I would interview business owners who've gone through some of the same things and came to the same realization. Um, if I'm a writer in my writing business, being the implementer holds me back because muscles is a finite resource. And uh, I also want to speed up a little bit. And he says the false belief that implementers believe is that hard work is the key to success when it's not. Hard work is the key to success when it's not. And so here, if you rewind, is uh, Dallas from maybe a year ago, a few months ago. I'm working hard in my business. I'm using my muscles to get the job done. And I'm doing that because it's us versus them at this point. It's all about me. They said I couldn't do it, and I'm, I'm, I'm bent to do it. I'm bent to do it on my own. I want to glory all the credit because people doubted me my entire life. I want to be the superstar. I want to prove everybody wrong. I'm coming from a competitive state of mind. I want to be better than the next person, and I want to do it on my own so that no one else can take the credit for what I've done, for what I've built. I'm using my muscle. And so let me put it to you like this. In a freelance writing business, you know, if you're the one doing the writing, how much can you, how much money can you earn? Okay. The amount of money that you can earn is this. If I was to charge $500 for a book without any, I'm not going to specify the book because it gets too complex, but let's say I'm charging $500 for a book. How much money can I earn in a month? Okay. If I had unlimited, if I had infinite customers, how much money could I earn in a month? That's the question. The answer is this. About $2,000 if I'm charging $500 for a small book. And why is that? Because I have unlimited customers, virtually unlimited in this hypothetical equation. But I'll get a, I'll take on a customer. I'll spend seven days writing the actual book. And then when I'm done, I'll get $500 or before I'll get $500. Um, and then I'll take on the next customer. It'll take seven days and I'll get $500. Two weeks have passed. I've only made $1,000. Because... I'm relying on my muscles and it's taking my time, my actual effort and my energy to do these projects. You see what I'm saying? Because it's taking me time and no one else is working when I'm working. It's going to take seven days or 14 days to get that thousand dollars and then a whole month to get that thousand dollars. 
you'll never and, and if I'm getting two thousand a month, I can only get what um twenty four hundred to twenty four thousand a year. That's not enough money. Working hard doesn't make sense. But that's how we that's how we process, that's how we proceed into the world when we feel like everybody else is against us, when we feel alone in our endeavors, when we feel like we're the sole superstar and sole intelligence that knows the information. We want to do it. We want it to be us. We want to be competitive so when we win, everybody can see us and know that we're great, that we can have the love and we don't have to divide it or share it with anybody. That's a poverty mindset. They believe hard work is the key to success. Now, let's say, you know, for instance, if I hired in my business, how much more could I get per month? It'd be infinite because I wouldn't take, set, you know, when I get, if I had infinite customers, I can hand a customer to one of my writers, hand a customer to another of my writers, hand a customer to another of my writers, and get a small percentage from each of them. But it's not based on my time, my personal energy and effort at this point. When I heard that, you know, implementers get paid the least at the target, it changed my mindset. And then he continued on. He said, the next level of value is unification. Unification is people who use their managerial skills to make money, and they get paid a little more. They're a higher level of value. There are four levels of value overall, and this is a higher level of value. This is the second, second level of value. Is the, They use their managerial skills to make money. Think about this now. Your manager, th- though he does less work than you, he uses his muscles less than you. He works less hard than you. He manages you, and because his skill is more valuable, he earns more than you. He said, the, you know, the false belief they believe at this level is that education is the key to more success when it's not. The next thing he said was that communication is the third highest value level. And this is where people begin to become multimillionaires. They become multimillionaires at this level. And these are people who use their voice to create conversations in society around cash flow. Okay. Think about talk show hosts, you know, uh, rappers, singers, musicians, you know, artists, people who use their voice. They communicate ideas into society to bring in cash flow. And these are people like Jimmy Fallon, Jay-Z, Beyonce, multimillionaires. It's not about hard work. Not at all. Hard work has nothing to do with it. He said the fourth level of value, and this is the more important one that I really want to focus on, is creativity. These are the billionaires of the world. Hundreds of millions of dollars of the world. And To solidify this, he said, when you say Apple, who do you think of? And most people say Steve Jobs. And what he said after kind of shocked me. He said, Steve Jobs is not the first person to create an Apple computer. His partner, Steve Wozniak, is. But Steve Jobs, he popularized the idea of Apple, and so he became a billionaire. Last time I checked, Steve Wozniak is not even a billionaire. He popularized the idea of Apple. He used, you know, he said, Imagineers, people who use their creativity, they use two resources. They use their mind and their money to make money. So Steve Jobs didn't have to use his muscle to create the Apple computer. His time, his energy, his effort. Instead, what he did is he used his mind and his money. He paid somebody and conceptualized the idea and he became a billionaire and he changed the world with his idea. Think about Elon Musk. Elon Musk doesn't spend, unless he wants to, 
and he does want to a lot of times. He doesn't spend all his time working on Teslas at the factory, building tires physically with his hands. If it was just him doing that, if he was the superstar of his team, it'd take a million years to build one Tesla. What he does is he thinks of the concept of a Tesla and pays workers in his factory to get it done. Okay? And so that's the whole idea. A lot of people in society, a lot of people with ideas that want to get their ideas outside of the world, you know, they're using their muscle. They're trying to be the superstar. It's an us versus them mentality. They want to be the superstar of the team because they want all the credit. They want all the glory. They want to take from the world. And I feel like when I was watching, you know, and when I, when I, I remember hearing that for the first time and it kind of just blew my mind away, it kind of blew my mind away. Absolutely. But I started imp- trying to implement it in business. And the first way it worked was I would I would just I was just a middleman. I would use my mind to develop a system to get people to come to me and then I would hire writers you know, independently contract writers to write for me. And it was a lot of mistakes. It was a lot of hiccups at first. It didn't really work out very well. Um, and I kind of just, you know, I've kind of tweaked that system a little bit when that first $2,000 order came in. Okay. But here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. I, I'm trying to make this as clear as possible. That's why I'm taking so many pauses. But here's the thing. The reason things didn't work out for me at first is this. Or, or let's 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 go to a different topic first. I feel like I don't even know how to say it. You know, you got to look at the four levels of value and realize the people at the top, the Imagineers. The reason you you know the reason that I didn't have a lot of success with it is because I was coming at it from a taking frame of reference. I wanted to take things. Okay. I wanted them to work so that I could get money. I didn't care about what the writers under me would benefit from it. I just wanted to collaborate. I, I, I envisioned a system that served myself. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I envisioned a system that served myself. And so writers would bring back non-quality work or they would ghost me. And when they ghosted me or they brought back non-quality work, the client would get mad about it because I wasn't focused on them benefiting I just wanted to benefit. I just wanted to get money from this company. And so I would blow up and be the biggest thing in the world and fund my rap career and be the face on all these TV screens. I was coming from a competitive frame of mind. I I wanted to be better, have a better life than the writers that was working under me. I wanted to keep my secret sauce for myself. I wanted to be better than the clients. I wanted to, oh, I'm taking their money. I'm scamming them. You know, I felt like that at times. Oh, I, I outsmarted them. There's a lot of narcissism behind it. But here's the thing. The people who are working from an imaginary frame of mind, it works so well for them because they beat that frame of mind. And they beat that frame of mind the same way I did. By going through two years of suffering and not making any sales. The way that you become an imagineer, the way that you become, you know, the person that is at the top of the hierarchy, at the top of these companies, is not from, comp- from a, coming from a competitive frame of mind. It's from coming through a collaborative, a collaborative frame of mind. You have to collaborate with the world. 
I remember walking down the street and I realized even though I had that piece of the puzzle, the levels of value, I hadn't went through enough. I hadn't been burned enough and hit enough and beat enough to realize that I had to stand out my own way. I had to let my I had to let my ego fall to the wayside or else this frame of mind or else this way of proceeding wouldn't work at all. And that's what I was feeling. I was looking at the poster of a boogie and I was only thinking about how much better he was than everybody else. You know how he was part of my culture and he was better than the people in the world around me. It was us versus them and he's like me. He made it. He has money. He has wealth. He has riches and I envy that because I wanted that for myself. The people that had all these Rolls Royce and Phantoms, I wanted I envied the wealth of it. I envied the consumption of it. The consumerism part of it. They had all the eyes and the attention, the Rolls Royce and the Phantoms. I didn't ever for a second in those periods think of the you know the the good that they put out in the world being equivalent. I didn't think about that at all. And when I was watching the Golden Gloves, these people, Golden Gloves, it was just an emphasis on the fact that these rich people were soaking up to tension. It, it, you know, this is a consumption part of the entire ordeal. But that consumption part is, a, is an empty equation without the other part of the equation, which is production. You have to give back to people. You have to give back to the world. And when I was walking down the street on the way to this 7-Eleven, it struck me, like I said, like a bolt of lightning. Man, you've been taking and taking and taking. Well, you have been taking. There's always been an emphasis in my life of giving. But the emphasis wasn't great enough. I wanted to create movements that were about me. Instead of creating movements that were about the world. I wanted to be the superstar of this movement. I wanted to be the identity, the face of this movement. But what I realized is the movement would never work. This business would never work unless I disappeared into the movement itself. Until I became a part of that mass itself. Now, obviously, companies, they have a position of CEO. But he disappears into the mass. He disappears into the team. He's, you know, like Elon Musk said, he had very little cash reserves in his company. I mean, in his personal bank account. Because it's all vested in the company. It's all invested in the movement. Steve Jobs stopped taking paychecks because he was invested in the movement. Steve Jobs, he had Steve Wozniak. He wasn't the superstar. He had Steve Wozniak. You know, I tried to be solo. I tried to perform on my own like a lot of people with minds do because you feel so alienated. You feel so isolated. You feel like it's you against the world. And you want all the love and rewards that come with all that pain, you know, to make up for all that pain. Not divided amongst anybody else. You want it for you. And so, walking down the street that day, I realized that's not just a problem with me. That's a problem in the world at large. You know, like I said, just to name an example, no one does it on their own. But you have to identify a way where the situation is beneficial to everybody involved. Where, every, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. You don't want to raise your ship, you want to raise the tide around you. That's the thing that I realized. Warren Buffett had Charlie Munger. Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak. You know, even starting PayPal, Elon Musk had Peter Thiel. 
These were all collaborations. The guy at the top of the pyramid, the Imagineer, you notice something about the levels of value? In order for the Imagineer to flourish, he needs all the levels of value operating under him, level one, two, and three, present as well. And that's kind of not only present as well, but flourishing as well. I had switched my mindset from a competitive mindset to a collaborative mindset. And this is something I have fought all my life. And you know what? Life has a way of serendipitously teaching you lessons. And when you face that wall as a as a as an idea a person with ideas that want to get, get out into the world, the lesson is in the trial. The challenge and the hurt and the pain is the way. Because I realized something and looking back, when I left my house, I would have been homeless and starving if it wasn't for my girlfriend and her mother. When I was at my house for the first 22 years, I would have been homeless already and starving if it wasn't for my parents. You know, when I went into each business endeavor, originally I wouldn't have made, you know, gotten clients if it wasn't for Fiverr and the teams that work there. You know, it was I wouldn't have money if it, at times if it wasn't for the clients that were accepting that work. I realized why I'm trying to be the one, why I'm trying to be competitive. There had never been a point in my entire life where I operated without a team at all. Being beat up over and over and over and over and over again and quote unquote emasculated because your girlfriend is paying for a lot of the things that you need. The lesson in all of that or her mother or your parents or your friend, which I've never taken money from a friend, but just for example, more support even for, or your friend. The lesson in that was, look, you're going to fail as long as you're the superstar. The lesson in it all was Humility. The lesson in it all was collaboration is the way. That's what I had to learn. I would get beat up and I would lose over and over and over and over again unless I learned collaboration. And you know, it's funny enough, looking around in society, you realize people have conversations all the time, but humans are not interfacing with each other in these conversations. They're just thinking of the next thing that they're going to say. They're not really listening and intaking that person. They're not in that conversation to change that person's life or actually experience that person. They're in that conversation to boost their own status, to make themselves look good, to take. There are two positions that you could be standing on and they're akin to, you know, uh, collaboration and competition. You can either be a consumer, which is somebody in competition. I want all the eyeballs. I want all the status. I want all the glory. Or you could be a producer. Someone that's making the content, that's making the businesses, is putting jobs and value into society. It's interesting enough. People hate billionaires all day long, but you realize billionaires got a billion dollars because they provided a billion dollars worth of value. Elon Musk said this, you are paid in proportion to the magnitude of problems that you solve for the world. It all comes down to the fact that a business is about solving problems. It's about producing. It's about giving and giving, producing cannot happen from a state of competition, 
from a mindset of scarcity. I want all the resources for me. It only comes from a mindset of you know, a collaboration. Business in itself is a selfless act. You have to serve at the highest level in order to be compensated. And that's why when I realized nothing for me was going right. Everything was falling apart. Because I wasn't serving. I was self-serving. And a lot of people were. And so what I want to impart with this podcast, with what it, you know, is that we have to serve to the highest level. And that's how the world is to be changed. The world is to be changed by, you know, serving at the highest level. And the only way we serve at the highest level is through empathy. We have to be empathetic to what people are feeling. Tune in to what people are feeling in order to serve them because we know what they want. We know what they desire. We know what, we know where their pain points are. Business is all about serving and serving is all about empathy. And in fact, every endeavor you know, I, I'm trying not to get too complex right here, but every endeavor that we'll ever go into that result, you know, revolves around empathy and serving, even collaboration. And so we go forth into society with these ideas of who we are. We're entrepreneurs, we're creatives, we're idealists, you know, but these are the wrong tags and they're the wrong tags because the connotation that forms in your mind on the basis of them it only serves to keep you hitting your head up, you know into that wall these tags say I'm the one you know entrepreneur oh what is what's condemnation with entrepreneur I'm the one with the ideas with the plan hustle 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 work hard I'm a creative what I do create 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 you know it's not about any of that all these tags the connotation and the expectation of someone who owns this tag is the false connotation. And it runs people into walls because they follow those connotations. People say hustle, hustle, hustling is not the way. What is the way you might ask? What does all this mean? What are you talking about? It's design. That's what it is. The way is design. Let me explain to you a little bit about what design is and why you're a designer in effect. A designer is an imagineer. You imagine the design of something, but you have no part in fulfilling upon that design and the creation of that design. Our job in society, what I realize is people who have ideas that want to project them into movements is to collaborate with the right identities to make that movement happen. That's all it is. That's all it is. In order for me, you know, I wanted to rap, but I couldn't make a rap album because I was too busy engineering the album and producing the album and, and, and writing the lyrics and doing all these things that I didn't have expertise at. And these things would take years to learn, you know, uh, to learn, you know, and, and, and develop to the point where I could actually put out a decent album. But you know what the, the best artists in the world do? They just think of an idea. And then they use their empathy to assemble people around that vision. 
This is what I mean. Let's say I'm going to make an album. I'm an artist. What is my idea? I think of an idea. And then I find who I can collaborate with. Who can I collaborate with? This is the best engineer in the world for this particular project. This is the best writer in the world for this project. They write really good lyrics. If you don't, you know, you can write them yourself, obviously. I mean, it's your story. Or here's the best producer in the world for this album. Here's the best guitar player and a violinist. You know, like Frank Ocean's Blonde album. It's a classical masterpiece because he went to James Blake and, and King Cruel and Earl. He went to all these different people. He disappeared into the movement. And through that, the beauty of so many different minds was assembled and collaborated to make something bigger than himself. In order to make something bigger than yourself, you have to be beyond yourself. You understand what I mean? In order to make something bigger than yourself, you have to be beyond yourself. You, 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 you are brilliant in your own right. But a CEO is not a company. You have to find who it is you're going to collaborate with, Right? And then you have to empathize. You have to put your empathy first. When you're competitive, it's because you're worried about yourself. You're not empathizing with the needs of other people. You have to empathize. What is this person that I'm collaborating with? What is the best deal for them in their life? Okay? So these employees or or, or the people who are writing for me, what do they want? What 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 is it that they feel and value the most in life? Let's say they want to pay the bills. Because, and they want to put their kids through college. Now let's define the best deal for them to do that. Because we empathize them. We understood what they want. Now in order to collaborate with them. What is the best deal that I can make. For them to. Assemble around this vision. This idea that I have. Okay. I'll give them five grand for each project. That'll pay the bills and put his kids through college eventually. Just for example. Now what is the. What is. What is. You know. Let's go back to the music example. That's the writer of the song. Okay. Now, uh, the best producer, what does he need from this project? He needs, let's say, a million dollars because he wants to stunt and he wants to take his wife on a honeymoon and get married. Or what, is, what, is, what is he feeling? We have to empathize with people. When we have conversations, we have to dig, dig, dig and find what it is that is closest to people's heart. And then when we, when we find what it is that is their best deal because we empathize with them, collaboration comes easily. Because they get out of the collaboration, what they always, what their their end goal anyway, what they always dreamed. Everything starts with empathy. Everything starts with collaboration. Everything. That's the basis of everything. What a designer does, what a designer is, and you are a designer. That's who you're meant to be. When you switch that label, when you become a designer, you realize your only idea, the only thing to do that you have to do in society is form ideas. I believe everything will become easy for you. Just sit back and think. This is the idea. This division. This is the movement. Who? Like Russell Brunson always said, it's not the what. What do I need to learn? It's the who do I need to meet? Who can I gather around this vision, around this collaborative effort? Empathize with them. What is the best deal that I can make for them to make things happen? So why is this called the Grand Design Podcast, you might ask? It's called the Grand Design Podcast because a bunch of designers creating a mad, their own mass movements because they're collaborating with people through empathy. If a bunch of designers with the best intentions are using mass movements to design their own pockets of reality, then the reality that results is the grand design. That's what I want for the world. I want the grand design. 
I think the future of humanity is dependent on the level of empathy that we will want to put into society. That's what it's all based on. How can we empathize with people and through that empathy collaborate to come up with the best thing? I remember Kanye West said this and I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. He said, I believe, and this is our this is this is what I want every designer to keep in his mind. I believe the world can be saved by design. I just made a video on Instagram about this. It's homeless people everywhere in LA. Now, it might not be my job particularly as a designer to design a solution for them, but someone in someone somewhere in the world is very passionate about helping the homeless. If we can teach them how to form a mass movement around their desire to help the homeless against the media that's trying to slam us down, against the, 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 the society that's trying to keep us in a box. If we can teach them how to make a mass movement around that identity, then someone out there is solving the problem for the homeless. Someone is designing a new world for the homeless, a new opportunity. And while they're doing that, that's all they do for society. They don't have to worry about solving world hunger. Because someone out there is real, real passionate about world hunger. If we can teach them how to make a mass movement around that, a design, teach them how to design a, 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 a space in society, a mass movement around the idea of solving world hunger, we have someone solving that. If we have a collection of designers who are working diligently, you know, and maybe someone's method of doing that is different from another person. Maybe there's a designer that prefers to solve world hunger through music about the topic at hand. Like Kendrick Lamar, he solves the problem of gang violence through music. We'll all express it in different ways. But the ultimate idea is this. A bunch of designers with mass movements in their own specific niche, in their own specific area, results in a future that is essentially perfect. It results in the grand design. You know? My personal mission with this entire podcast is to work towards something called the universal identity. Okay? We want to work for, 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 you want to, and this, this is what I think, it, we want to work to, it's, it's to work to the, towards the grand design, but we'll only achieve the grand design through achieving something called the universal identity. And so what is the universal identity? Okay? The universal identity is this. In society, we have factions, okay? And because a lot of people are unfulfilled and a lot of people are stifled by negativity and stifled by society crushing down on them, a lot of these factions are negative, you know, are based on fear and, com- and competition and, and, and combativeness. They're, ver- they're, they're based in a competitive mindset. Like me as a black individual, a lot of black individuals, they are scared or competitive against the police, there's no collaboration between those two factions. And in a lot of people's minds, that identity, you know, as 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 black or as or as or as straight or as male trumps every other identity that they might have. It trumps the human identity that they might have. You understand what I mean? Think about it like this. If someone is in a gang, for example, you know, they will kill innocent civilians or someone who's not in a gang because the identity of gang is more important to them than the identity of human you know if they weren't if they identified as human foremost and you know before everything else 
you know, it would be like, okay, well, this other person is human. So that's all that matters right now. Even if they're not in my gang, they're human and I can respect them for that. Even if this person is in a rival gang, they're human. And so that matters before anything else. You know, we have identities between countries. Oh, we're Americans. And so we're so detached from the issues of people in other countries and like, let's say, Syria and the Middle East that are being blown up and things like that because we identify, okay, we're American. We're different from them. We're in a competitive frame of mind. We don't relate to their issues. Their issues are theirs because we are us and they're them. Just like I was feeling. It's competitive. It's based in competition. If they do bad, I guess we do good. We're different. Because the identity of us as Americans trump the identity as human. As human. Now, same thing with the homeless issue. Oh, you know, not only do we have designers designing each category, but you know, it'll be easier to assemble more people around these mass movements, such as helping the homeless, if we can reach. You know, uh, if we can bring the human identity to trump the identity of the groups that they hold, like if we identify ourselves as workers, for example, it's like, okay, we're workers, we're working hard. And these homeless people were competitive, like they're going to take our jobs. They're going to, you know, they don't, they just want our money. They want our taxpayer dollars. They want to, they want, they want to get stuff for free, you know, and it's, so it's us versus them. Essentially it's competitive. We don't want them to win because that means we lose. It's a competitive frame of mind. If we can erase a competitive frame of mind and come to a collaborative frame of mind, if we can teach humanity empathy, and if we can teach them empathy, uh, uh, we'll, we'll come to a place of collaboration and empathy, rather, is what I mean. If we can teach people that the human identity is the only identity and it comes before any other identity. You know, obviously, other identities will always exist. But the identity as human should be, first and foremost, the strongest thing. It would be akin to, we should live in a world akin to if aliens were to come down here right now. If aliens were to invade right now, we wouldn't care about poor, rich, black, white, you know, any of that. Race, religion, any of that. The first thing we would care about is we all human and they're not. That is the universal identity. We can accomplish them because we'll, we, we, we can conquer them because we'll unify. We'll have empathy for other people. He has a family. He has a family. He has a family just like mine. And then collaborate against this foe, against this, against this person, you know, that we're, all, that we're going up against this alien, against this threat, against this invasion. It's like the coronavirus, you know, subtly race, religion, poor, rich. It doesn't matter. Everybody's getting coronavirus. We're unified as humans. doesn't matter what gang you're in. This is the universal identity, a strengthening and, and, and making the identity of us as human the primary thing in our lives. It's the primary thing. Not, OK, well, I'm a black human. And he's a white human. And me being black, that identity is black human trumps the identity of human. So screw him. It's about pushing that identity as human to the forefront at all times. Regardless of where you live, regardless of who you are, regardless of any of that stuff. That's what I learned. That's what I learned on that walk. Think about it. If we all assumed the human identity and unified along those ideas and we had different factions of mass movements, let's say climate change. 
If we all had empathy for each other, we felt each other's moves, and so we all structured the best deal to help one another out. If we all collaborated in the way that assisted everybody in the best way, how easy would it be for a unified world to solve climate change? Especially especially if we had a mass that could bend and shift under the guidance of a designer already on the case, already in that category, a mass movement already created in that regard. If human beings could unify and just everybody dedicated all their knowledge and resources and powers to solve climate change, it would be overnight. It would happen overnight. I believe as a symptom of the universal identity, I believe in a future that does not have borders. Because borders is only to divide, only creates us versus them. It's only our country is just a big gang against another gang. The only reason for borders is that, you know, our identity as Americans or as whatever country you are is greater than the human identity. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, I see, you know, the vision for all designers should be the borderless world. The universal identity is gonna is gonna result in the borderless world. I see the borderless world happening. I do. In our lifetimes, we can do this. How would our cities look like if we could gear all of humanity to focus on changing one issue at a time? Just what you know, what would the future look like? What 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 future will we raise our kids in? What 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 will we raise our kids to to, to feel, to know, to to what type of thing can we create for them while we're all still here? If we all just empathize and collaborate on the basis of that empathy. You have to empathize because you don't want to give somebody the wrong deal. You have to know what, how people work, what people are going through. What you know. I believe the problem with most of the world is we're competitive because we lack empathy. You know? People want to eat the rich because they don't humanize the rich. They don't relate to the rich. They don't empathize with the rich and how they're feeling and what they're going through as human beings. I feel like that's a problem that a lot of the world is running to. And all this is going in my mind, mind you, as I'm taking a walk up the street to the 7 the freaking 11. All in just one snap of the finger. It all came to me. It all, it all, it all came to me with such clarity. And so here's the deal, man. I realize this. I don't necessarily want. Now, I want to accomplish things. But having that Rolls Royce. You know, having that Grammy. Having all these things. Having people love me. I start to question, man. This was what started to worm in my mind. Is this the most important thing in the world? I didn't know at that point in time, but I just thought to myself, look, if it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a little too late in the game to call, you know, to call audibles and make changes on the fly. But here's what I do know. If I want those things, I'm going to have to step back away from my business. I'm going to have to come up with the idea. I'm going to have to conceptualize my business. And use my empathy. Because empathy is a great skill of mine. It is literally probably my primary skill as someone. My, I learned my personality last month 
through a test uh, in November, actually. And it hadn't appealed to me at this moment, but I realized my personality is INFJ. And that personality is, is, is purely based in empathy. Empathy is my superpower. Now, empathy might not be your superpower, you know. And so as someone who's a designer, maybe your role is not necessarily to be the one that's collecting people around your vision. Maybe your role is to be someone who supports the vision very well with your skill. You understand what I mean? And so I realize, okay, my role in this, 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 if, if I want to succeed, if I want to pay this rent at the end of the month, because I have two months to gather $2,000, you know, I'm going to have to empathize with the people that, you know, write a list of the people I need in my business, which I have the list right here in front of me, actually. Let me find it for you. I wrote it uh, a few weeks ago. Um, what is this? All right, I'm not gonna look at that right now. I can look at that when this podcast episode is over. But what is this? Okay, I need writers, uh, affiliates, and affiliate manager, uh, a salesperson, an interviewer, and a content manager. Um, in uh, video editors, I realized okay, I'm gonna have to empathize with these this list of people. What do they want? And give them the best deal so that we can have the best collaboration and therefore the best business. I, th- I told myself, okay, maybe you don't have to be the superstar. Maybe you have to fall back into the movement of your business. Think about what your clients want the most. And assemble the best team of people around. The best collaboration to get them what they love the most and then the results will come. That was the plan that I set out. And so... I rate this list of people I need, writers, affiliates, affiliate managers, salespeople, interviewers, content managers, video editors. And instead of setting out on a quest to do everything myself, being a superstar in my business and getting all these clients and winning, it, you know, I stopped focusing on being a superstar and I set the plan to find these people and accomplish the best, you know, the best product that I can for the people that I will work with and get them the results they want. And that was the plan I structured or how the rent would be paid. Okay. And so at this point in time, it's probably what, January and I have two months to have this business working or else rent would not be paid and we would be on the streets, plain and simple. And I'm going to let you know how the plan actually worked in this next podcast episode. All right. And so... I might have talked a little more than I wanted to in this podcast episode and spilled a little bit of a little bit more of the beans than I wanted to. But uh look man, I hope this is reaching people. I hope this content is touching people's heart. You know, this is this is what I see for the world. The objective of this podcast purely is to help you, uh, you know, the you know, designers, you and I as designers. I want to help you and give you the tools and the knowledge as I learn them to gather the people, you know, to collaborate with the right people and take these ideas that you have in your head that you know can change society and bring them into a mass movement that people generally, you know, that is that, that is a cultural staple. That's all I want. And um, yeah, like I said, I might have said a little too much in this podcast, but um. I don't know, man. Just thanks for listening.
thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate everybody, man. This is Dallas Breeder. Uh, I don't know what else I have to say. Uh, send me a message on Instagram about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, send, rate this podcast. Comment on this podcast. Whatever you have to do, man. This is Dallas Prater uh, from the Grand Design Podcast. Thank you so much, designers, for listening. And I'll see you about how this plan, about, you know, the ultimate plan in the next episode. Thank you.